Jeffrey Sachs is a world-renowned economics professor. He's a best-selling author, innovative educator, and global leader in sustainable development. Professor Sachs serves as the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. He was director of the Earth Institute of Columbia University from 22 to 2016. He is president of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He was also the advisor of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. And he also previously advised United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan, as well as Ban Ki-moon. Most important to this discussion, though, Professor Sachs served as an advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev. This was in the early 90s, during the period of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And subsequent to that, he was also an advisor to Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Federation. Welcome to the program, Professor Sachs. Um, I have to say to you that I'm approaching this discussion with somewhat of a bias, or perhaps I should describe it as a sense of frustration about the single-minded or rather the one-sided narrative about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which we are, at least in the Western media, being confronted with on a daily basis. You know the story, the conflict is relentlessly being described as an unprovoked invasion by Russia. And yes, Vladimir Putin is the devil himself. He is the Adolf Hitler of our time, and he is a madman hell-bent on restoring the might of Russia. That's the narrative. This is not true, and you know that, and I know that. And I, Well, I guess that's the question. Is it true? Well, I, I've written that this is just the latest neoconservative debacle uh, of uh, the U.S. neoconservatives. The neoconservatives are the group that took over U.S. foreign policy 30 years ago at the end of the Soviet Union. This neoconservative group said, oh, okay, our rival is gone. We now are the sole superpower. We run the world. We are the hegemon, to use the term that the international relations uh, types use. Uh, Or uh, as the military in the U.S. says, uh, we have full spectrum dominance. Now, the idea was 30 years ago already, we can basically do what we want. And they have tried in Iraq. They have tried in Syria. They have tried in Libya. They have tried in Afghanistan. And what they've tried to do is to say the U.S. runs the show. It it fails all the time. When it comes to this war in Ukraine, this has been brewing for three decades as well, because the terms of Gorbachev ending the Soviet Warsaw Pact military alliance was that NATO would not take advantage of that, Mm -hmm. but would also stay where it was. The phrase that was used to Gorbachev was NATO will not move one inch to the east. Of course, as soon as the Soviet Union ended, the United States neocons said, we can do what we want. We don't have to honor any agreement. And they started NATO enlargement. First to Central Europe, probably 
acceptable and understandable, though a lie. I, I wouldn't have done it. <clears throat> but to Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, these were countries that had been dominated by the Soviet Union. They're not close to Russia. <clears throat> they weren't any direct threat to Russia to have them as part of NATO. But then, starting in the 2000s with George W. Bush Jr., who really was the neocon administration par excellence with Cheney as his vice president, the one who made the Iraq war, for example, they enlarged NATO to seven more countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Now, that's coming pretty close to Russia, and Russia kept saying, don't do this. It's provocative. You told us you never would. You're getting to our borders. You're threatening our security. And then in 2008, uh, George Bush actually did the horror, though privately, of the Europeans, said, we're going to expand NATO to Ukraine and to Georgia. Now, if you look at a map, and I hope your uh, listeners do look at a map, if the NATO alliance expanded to Georgia and Ukraine, the idea was and would be to encircle Russia in the Black Sea, because you'd have NATO in Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia. You'd actually encircle the Russian naval fleet. And as U.S. neocon strategists said, that would end Russia as any kind of even regional power. It mm. couldn't uh, project any uh, kind of power, even naval, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. That was the idea. The Russians were beside themselves. And Putin said in the 2008 Bucharest NATO summit to Bush, to his face, if you do this, we will take Crimea because that is for us core security. Americans are incredibly arrogant at, at the, this governmental level. They believe they don't have to listen to anybody. But, you know, there was a breathing space in 2010 because a pro-Russian president was elected in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. Yeah. And he said, we should be neutral. <laughs> we don't want to be caught in a trap between the United States and Russia, we will be neutral. Yeah. But that's not good enough for America. You're either with us or you're against us. So the United States worked pretty hard to overthrow Yanukovych in the so-called Maidan uh, in, in late 2013 and early 2014. Yeah. I want to talk to you about what happened in 2014, but I just want to go back to the early 90s, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the promises made to Gorbachev, uh, namely, if the Warsaw Pact is dissolved, NATO will not move an inch towards the east. That was the promise that was made. A lot of people are disputing that. My question to you is, is there a, a paper trail or documentary proof of this, this agreement, or at least this verbal promise? It's 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 thoroughly documented. People can go on uh, something called nsarchive.gwu.edu. GWU is George Washington University, and it's the National Security Archive or nsarchive.gwu.edu. And the uh, 
title of the folder is NATO expansion, what Gorbachev heard. It was a very extensive amount of diplomacy that was used by Hans Dietrich Genscher, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, James Baker III, the US Secretary of State, to convince Gorbachev to go along with German reunification. It was not casual, it was detailed, it was briefed in detail, it's all documented, it's not an issue. Remember, in statecraft, countries lie. The United States lies for a living. And people could say, yeah, well, what's new? Well, they're lying about this one too. It's convenient to say these promises weren't given and they say it. And they get away with most things because a powerful government dominates the media. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is it was explicit. And Gorbachev was very explicit. And that is, yes, we can go forward, but it would not be acceptable for NATO to expand eastward. Yeah. Then Yeltsin picked this up, I know, when he became president. And he said repeatedly to Clinton, don't do this. And then the U.S. government line is, well, uh, well uh, um, Yeltsin accepted it. What does it mean accepted? What what he what he quote accepted is that Clinton said it's going to happen whether you want it to happen or not. That's what he accepted. He didn't say, oh, that's fine. I understand your point of view. He was given a fait accompli. And then when Putin became president at the end of the 1990s, he specifically vociferously objected. And in a famous speech that he gave at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, he explained, do not do this. Yeah. Do yeah. not come closer. And in 2008, very interestingly, at the Bucharest summit, European leaders said to me personally how bad an idea this is. But, you know, when you have a dominant power like the United States, these leaders don't speak publicly. Yeah. They do not talk against the United States. They fear they will get punished one way or another. Yeah. One European leader said they treat us like children, told me personally. Yeah. In a, I hear a lot. I see a lot. I, I know these people personally. I'm just not happy with the U.S. dominating the narrative when it is so dangerous, yeah. this misunderstanding. Professor Sachs, what about, what about the argument that NATO's presence in Eastern Europe ought not to be seen as a threat? as if we in the West gets to decide what might or might not be viewed as a threat by the Russians. NATO is not a threat. NATO is a defense alliance, and countries have the right to, the right to decide if they wish to join NATO. So if Ukraine wants to, they have the right to join NATO. Well, I'd say a couple of things. First, to go back to uh, the Maidan, which is the public square where the protests took place against Yanukovych, we know, I know, by the way, with my own experience, the U.S. was deeply implicated in the overthrow of the pro-Russian president. Yep. And in fact, we had politicians like John McCain go and speak to the protesters. And I've tried to say to the Americans, what would it be like if on January 6th, 
2021, our insurrection, you had had Chinese politicians coming encouraging the protesters to go uh, protest and overthrow the government. But that's exactly what we did. That's all on tape. That's not even disputed. I know that behind the scenes, there were all the machinations because basically the U.S. has an apparatus through the National Endowment of Democracy, through a network of so-called NGOs, uh, and through covert operations of the U.S. to try to uh, twist politics in other countries to U.S. bidding. Of course, we're horrified if any other country is engaged in ours. But this is normal business for the United States, and it's obnoxious, by the way, because what are U.S. senators speaking to the protesters doing? The moment that Yanukovych was overthrown, then the U.S. recognized the next pro-Western government, and all of the talk of neutrality was thrown aside. Suddenly it was all, we want to be part of NATO. Well, what do you know? And then, uh, as Putin had said, if you go forward this way, I need to take back Crimea because that is absolutely core national security. And he did. Then the United States poured in for seven years heavy NATO weaponry, which is why the Ukrainians are fighting so effectively right now, because the U.S. has been funding and advising and providing intelligence to the Ukrainian military for seven years. This is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. Uh, The the Ukrainians are dying, but it's the U.S. weaponry and it's the U.S. intelligence and it's the U.S. operations, it's the U.S. funding that is at the essence of this war. And at the end of 2021, the off-ramp ramp was obvious. The United States just needed to say to Putin's demand not to enlarge, we will not enlarge. Then there would not have been this war. And I called the White House and I said, please negotiate. The White House said, no, this is Ukraine's right. This is ridiculous, by the way. Because what we did was trap Ukraine in a devastating proxy war. And it is a bad outcome for Ukraine because Ukraine would have been peaceful and it would have been secure and it is worse than ever right now. So that's one point. But second point about this right, you know, this is a U.S. military alliance. It is not a defensive Uh, alliance. It is a military alliance. Mm -hmm. It's often offensive. It bombed Belgrade for 41 days in 1999. It overthrew Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Uh, It did the U.S. bidding in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2020. What's what's defensive about this? It doesn't operate under the U.N. charter. It is a U.S. military alliance, which Russia does not want on its 1,000, I think it's 600 kilometer border with Ukraine, and I don't blame them. And I find it absolutely uh, provocative and dangerous that the U.S. has insisted on this. And of course, I say to Americans who don't listen, uh, but anyway, I say to them, suppose that Mexico said, you know, we're a sovereign country. We want to have a military alliance with China because we're not so happy about 
the way the U.S. Uh, proceeds with its uh, war on drugs or anything else or the refugee problem. So we're going to have a military alliance with China. And you think the United States would say, yeah, that's great. You're a sovereign country. We're so happy for you. Congratulations. The U.S. would invade in a nanosecond. Yeah. And by the way, when Fidel Castro tried that in 1960, 61, the U.S. invaded. So and the U.S. announced in 1823 the Monroe Declaration. It said to the Europeans, you keep out of the Americas. It didn't say these are sovereign countries. They can decide anything they want. It said point blank, this is our backyard. You keep out of the Americas. Okay, so I'm completely uh, annoyed. And the reason I'm annoyed is that people are dying massively in Ukraine and we're escalating towards nuclear war and we're being fed nonsense by the Western media, which basically is regurgitating what the U.S. government is saying. Let's talk for a moment about that blunt power of the United States of America. We've seen it in recent times in the destruction of Iraq, and we've forgotten that close to, many say, a million people died in just that war, a war prosecuted without the permission of the United Nations. We've seen the destruction of Libya. We've seen American actions unauthorized and without any regard for international law in Syria. And we know what it means, in Putin's words, what it means to live in a so-called unipolar world with an all-powerful America dominating it all. And here's my question. What, what, is in, what is in it for the USA? And if I say what is in it for America versus the idea of a multipolar world where we can all have a say, where we can all coexist and cooperate, what is, it, what is in it for the Americans? I I don't think that there's uh, anything in it for the United States compared to a truly cooperative world where we're actually solving global problems. The United States has spent trillions and trillions of dollars on these awful wars that it has fought. And like you say, it it gets away with them. There is impunity. Uh, One of my colleagues at Columbia wrote a wonderful paper, a little disturbing, about uh, the fact that the United States overthrew around 30 governments in the Americas in the 20th century. You know, and I've, I've watched some of those coups with my own eyes, by the way, because the CIA is a, an unaccountable organization. Uh, and uh, since it operates in secrecy, uh, it's never held to account for blunder after blunder after blunder. But we've overthrown governments, we've destabilized societies, uh, you know, in Afri- in the African context, uh, uh, the CIA thought it was really important uh, that Lumumba be uh, assassinated uh, rather than to have uh, a, a, a true popular leader uh, in uh, the Congo after independence, that kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. putting the country on a tailspin for decades afterwards as if this is somehow good for America and so on. You know, there are people who argue uh, the line that, well, this is for the U.S. military industrial complex or to uh, keep vital resources and so on. There may be motivations like that, but it's so stupid. 
because it does not deliver anything of benefit or security for the American people, actually. But it is a mindset. The mindset is real. I know the mindset. And the mindset, by the way, if anybody plays the board game, which was popular in my youth in the United States, the game of risk, that's a, a board game where you have a world map. And the goal is to have your piece on every place in the world. That's how you win. That is the American mindset, I'm sorry to tell you, which is that we're not safe unless we have military bases everywhere. We already have them in 85 countries, 800 overseas military bases. It's not making us safe. It's making the world unstable. Yeah. And th this is uh, just a, a category error and a, uh, and a, a conceptual blunder but it is the neocon agenda. I wrote a book in 2019 called A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism. I can tell you it was not a bestseller. Uh, I don't know how many people read it, but uh, it's, its effects I, I don't feel because basically was saying this approach, this unipolar approach, this idea that America is the one country that gets to write all the rules, this is not going to deliver even for the American people, much less for the rest of the world. Yeah, well, this also at a high cost to the American people, a nation itself torn apart. You've just had your own January 6th insurrection. And whilst you're spending billions of dollars on this proxy war, and we all know this is nothing but a proxy war with the Ukrainians being the cannon fodder, whilst you are at the same time also moving to the bigger war, war with China. You constitute, what is it, 3% of the world's population, and yet you insist on this incredible dominance in the world. First, we are, we are currently 4.2% of the world population and about 15.5% of world production measured at international prices. So it's, it's, a, it's a rich country, it's a big country, but not a country in a position to run the world. China, after all, has a population that is more than four times the United States and an economy that at international prices is larger than the US economy. And so how we're gonna run China? Well, of course not. Uh, and that was the whole gist of President Xi Jinping's speech to the 20th Party Congress this week, which is the United States is not going to run China. And China has also a mindset. If the U.S. mindset is to run the world, the Chinese mindset is the other side is trying to run the world. You know, their their view is that the West is is tendentious and a threat. And they go back to uh, Britain in 1839, launching the Opium Wars, one of the most remarkable wars in history, because it was a war to ensure free trade in opium in China, if you can believe this. But that was the British. And the British were the Americans of the 19th century, or the Americans are the British of the mid 20th to 21st century. Arrogant, by the way, very arrogant. And uh, the British are still arrogant, uh, though they don't have an empire anymore. Uh, they are still the biggest cheerleaders for the war in Ukraine, which is really annoying to me because also I regard the war in Ukraine like the Crimean War 
which was a war in which Britain and France wanted to teach Russia a lesson in the 1850s. And their leader at the time in Britain was Palmerston. And Palmerston just wanted to smash the British Empire. And that's how Boris Johnson or Liz Truss talk right now. Of course, they're a small shadow of what they were in the 19th century. But the language and the Russophobia, the, the hatred of Russia actually goes back a long, long time. But none of this serves any useful purpose, and it all becomes vastly more dangerous in that the U.S. really has counterparts right now that are powerful, China being the main one. And China's rise is driving American strategists crazy. It's a kind of profound neurotic reaction right now because the U.S. is supposed to be the unipolar world and there's China. What are they doing there? They were supposed to come under the U.S. umbrella, but they want to do their own thing. And that is unforgivable. So we're virtually in a Cold War with China right now that the U.S. has instigated because all of our documents, including one that Biden put out a couple of weeks ago, says China's the biggest threat to the international order. Well, you look at it. How, how about the wars since 1980? The United States has been in nonstop wars, more than 190 military interventions. How many wars, how many wars has China been in since 1980? That would be zero. But they're the big threat. This is again kind of Orwellian mind speak. This is not honest, but the China's viewed as a threat. So the United States is now trying to contain China the same way that the United States contained the Soviet Union. We're literally trying to choke China off from access to technology. I think it's incredibly naive. Yeah. I think it's incredibly and, provocative. Yep. And by the way, what we're doing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan is just like we did vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, which is we're saying every day, we'll protect you, Taiwan, we'll protect you, Taiwan, we'll protect you, Taiwan, giving confidence to the most independent-minded Taiwanese to say, look, we've got the U.S. backing. Uh, and now the president of Taiwan is saying we're a sovereign country. Yep. So the whole one China, two systems approach, which was the basis of stability of U.S.-China relations being thrown out the door. Yep. But Taiwan is 23 million people, an island. China's 1.4 billion yep. people, a nuclear superpower. Yep. And the United States is going to defend them. Well, are we really going to have nuclear Armageddon over this issue? And this is the kind of provocative foreign policy we, that the United have, States yep. needs to stop yep. running. Yeah, and then we have Mrs. Pelosi for absolutely no reason whatsoever flying to Taiwan to literally poke the Chinese in the eyes. It, it seems insane and, and deeply provocative. And it doesn't deliver anything. Failure in Iraq, failure in Libya, failure in Syria, and, well, we also know that, ultimately, total humiliation in 
Afghanistan. The idea is U.S. security depends on full-spectrum dominance by the United States, that the U.S. can only be secure if it is dominant over every other country and every other region of the world. Now, no other country lives in those conditions. No country has security because of full-spectrum dominance, and the U.S. has an illusion that it has full-spectrum dominance. So what the U.S. needs to, I mean, and when I say the U.S., of course, we're not talking about populations. We're talking about small numbers of leaders of the permanent state. We're not even necessarily talking about presidents, by the way, mm -hmm. because this is foreign policy doctrine of the Pentagon and the security institutions of the United States. Politicians come and go, but this has been doctrine for a long time. And the point is that the U.S. wants a kind of security that it would absolutely deny to the other 96% of the world. It doesn't say to the, the only thing the U.S. says to the rest of the, you want security, you follow us, will be the security. Of course, then you have to follow us. You can't have any ideas of your own. And when we need certain things, you'll grant them because we're us. And so it's, it's a certain asymmetry, which I think is a, a dangerous asymmetry. Professor Sox, we are running out of time here. I want to just return to my opening questions to you. I guess I'm asking for confirmation on the two simple yet central questions of this discussion. In your own words, is it false to claim and utterly disingenuous to claim that this conflict in Ukraine is the result of an unprovoked invasion, as is being stated in the mainstream media and the US-NATO leadership on a daily basis, an unprovoked invasion by the Russians. And number two, that Vladimir Putin is a modern-day Hitler hell-bent on the restoration of Russian power, which necessitates the grabbing of land. This is a war that has been a hot war since 2014 and an absolutely avoidable war. And if Ukraine had followed a path of neutrality with security guarantees, as was on the table as late as March of this year, this horrible war could have been avoided altogether or stopped early on. And we should listen because we need to negotiate with Russia and with President Putin as the president of Russia. We need to negotiate because we need this war to end before it ends us. One last question, uh, Professor Sachs, your view. I believe, like I think many millions of other people around the world, that this war can, in fact, be stopped today. It can end today if the United States of America will allow that, that it is in the hands of the United States of America to stop this war today. This war could stop now. And in March, the two sides with the brilliant mediation of Turkey actually were exchanging documents to end the war. And then Ukraine walked away 
from the negotiating table. Best guess because their American patrons said, you should fight. You don't have to take neutrality. You should fight. And we were close to this war ending in March. It could have been avoided last December had Biden said, we are not expanding NATO. We hear you. No need to do that. We can have peace and cooperation and it can end now. And it needs to because otherwise it will continue to escalate. The first damage will be the destruction of Ukraine itself, its people, its physical infrastructure, its buildings, all of the suffering. But this is beyond Ukraine. This is escalating towards nuclear confrontation. The Ukrainians are urging that we keep escalating. And if a more general war breaks out, they write that NATO should attack Russia. This is mind-bogglingly wrong-headed and dangerous. We all have a stake in this war ending now. We have one minute uh, left, Professor Sachs, who blew up the pipeline. The United States blew up the pipeline. They told us that they were going to. Biden was standing next to Chancellor Schultz and said, if Russia invades, Nord Stream is finished. And a reporter said to him, Mr. President, that's a, a Russian... German project, how can you say that? And President Biden said, we have our ways. So that's the presumption until proven otherwise. Lo and behold, the Europeans can't figure out who did it. Lo and behold, the Swedes can't even share their intelligence with Denmark and Germany. The fingerprints are all over this thing. I believe that the overwhelming likelihood is the U.S. did it and tried to point otherwise, but we'll probably hear soon from the Europeans. It was sabotage, but the, the trail has run cold. We just can't figure out who did it. That's what we're probably going to hear as more patter from the, uh, from, from the U.S.-led uh, information system. The war continues, the destruction continues, and... Yeah, what I want to know is, is there any any sign whatsoever in your mind, something that you've observed that you might point to that will give us hope that sanity ultimately will prevail? You know, sanity can prevail because uh, clear thinking people all over the world know how dangerous this is. And we need to keep pushing and need to keep saying, stop the war. And this is for the sake of all humanity. Uh, not only for those immediately suffering, but the whole world is at risk as long as this war continues. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, thank you very much for sharing your views with us. I know this is a view that is rejected by the mainstream media, and I hope and I trust that you yourself do not rust the risk of being, as we say, cancelled uh, by your peers. Uh, I want to thank you very much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for talking to us today. Pleasure, pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Yeah.